Our scripture reading this evening is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And in my church, when we finish reading the scripture, we always say the word of the Lord, and then people respond with thanks be to God. So let's try that together. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What I want to talk to you about tonight is not something abstract or theoretical. I want to talk to you about something that's deeply personal for me. I might even say that it's the central struggle of my life. And I wonder if any of you are going to resonate with this. I want to talk about this question. Who is the primary audience of your life? Who is the primary audience of your life? Will you join me in praying? Father, we come to you, we come in the name of Jesus. We thank you that you have called us by your name. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. We ask that you would lead us and guide us, that you would speak to us, that you would pierce through our resistance, our callousness, and that you'd open our hearts to you, that we might hear your voice. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I was somewhere in my early to mid-20s when MySpace came into being. Some of you are still in diapers, and you've only heard the legends about this thing. <laughs> but when it came out, like many people, I signed up for a profile, and I have to confess that I spent many, many hours laboring over my page over the color and the layout, over the content of my personal page. I picked a, a, one of those songs to autoplay. Do you remember that? Super annoying. You landed on the page and it's like some songs blurring. I found some clever quotes and some pictures that I thought were cool. But the real challenge came when I started to try to create a bio for myself. I wanted to be seen as clever. I wanted to be seen as sophisticated and in intellectual. I wanted to be cool, and I wanted to be fun, and I, it also occurred to me that since I was in seminary at the time, I should probably acknowledge that I was a Christian somewhere in there. But let's be honest, the main goal that I had in laboring over my profile was that I hoped that women would find me intriguing. <laughs> now, the complexity came uh, for me when I kept thinking about the different people in my life that might actually read my page. I, I cringed as I thought about my mom reading the bio that I was crafting. And then I thought about some of my coworkers, and I thought about some of my fellow seminarians, and I thought about what they might think about me and how they could see through the spin, you know. I thought about my uh, mentor, and I thought about some childhood friends, and I, th the more I thought about it, the more complicated and the more anxious the whole experience became for me. It was perhaps the first moment in my life 
when I became deeply aware of the fact that I was in the business of image management. I was suddenly self-conscious about the fact that I had a public image of some sort and an audience to consider. What it simultaneously exposed for me was how deeply insecure I felt. I was confronted with the fact that I really, really wanted to be liked and accepted by a lot of different kinds of people. In fact, on a deeper level, I needed to be liked by them. One of the more insidious things about the era in which we live is the way that technology has made us so self-conscious, so painfully aware of ourselves. Social media has turned each of us into our own brand management consultancies. Whether you're uploading a picture on Instagram or you're tweeting a link on Twitter or you're posting something on Facebook, you're not merely sharing data. You're not just rearranging pixels on a screen. You're crafting an identity. And it's not just an identity in the abstract. It's an identity in reference to a particular set of audiences. Think about it. The witty comments that people put online or the pictures that people post of exotic places they've been traveling, or the stories of personal suffering that we put online, or the articles that we share, or the gifts that we, we post. Everything we do at some level is curated toward an audience and contributes toward building a certain identity for ourselves. And of course, it's not just social media, right? So much of our life here in San Francisco is about this. Whether it's your resume, or the company that you work for, or the causes you support, or the, the movements you identify yourself with, or your wardrobe, or your online dating profile, what you drive, or the fact that you're so eco-conscious that you don't drive at all. It seems like nearly everything we're doing, whether consciously or unconsciously, is being co-opted into cultivating an image to project to the world around us. And we're all encouraged to do this, actually. We're encouraged to express our individuality. I don't know if you've seen, there's a sign, uh, a little billboard on one of the minibuses I saw recently, and it, it's uh, an advertisement for a clothing company. And the clothing company's motto is, be an original. And I have to say that I found it slightly ironic uh, that a corporate clothing company, which makes its money from mass-producing clothing, is encouraging each of us to be an original. But it all connects back to the fact that our culture is obsessed with each person consciously cultivating an image for his or herself to present to the world. Have you noticed that uh, when you sign a petition online, or when you sign up for a cause, or when you donate to charity, or when you sign up for a conference or a class, or whatever you're doing online, there's always that list of little buttons that allows you to instantaneously share what you've done with everyone in your social network. It's like you don't want anybody to ever miss something important that you've done, right? But it doesn't end there. After you share it, you can keep track of how many people have seen your post and how many people are engaging with you, which gives you metrics for how you're doing with your audience. The more clicks or views or shares or comments that you get, the more significant you are, the more prominent and visible you are, and thus, the more you matter. Now, whether you're a social media person or not, uh, maybe there's a couple people in the room that 
don't do social media. Congratulations to you. Um, what I want you to recognize is that all of us here, all of us live right now in a time and in a place in which the volume level of people around us is cranked way up. Social media is just merely one illustration of this. But everywhere you look, the voices of people are really loud. Everyone is, everyone is watching each other. And we're all talking past each other. It's like we're in an echo chamber of voices. Everyone has a platform and a stage and an audience. And it's in this context that I want you to hear the words of Jesus from today's scripture. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. Will you say that with me? Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. And he goes on and says, For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, Jesus is speaking into a first century context in which there are huge social benefits for appearing a certain way. Now, admittedly, his setting is very different from ours here in San Francisco. But in some ways, nothing has changed at all. And if anything, the dynamics that he's concerned about, they're even more amplified, actually, in our setting. I mean, we should just be honest about this, right? There are huge social benefits to be gained by doing good deeds in public these days. Like our city might define piety and righteousness differently than Jesus did. Actually, most certainly the city does. But to be aligned with the right group or the right cause or to be seen as against the wrong politician or to donate a large sum of money to the right institution will get you a long ways in terms of social benefits here in San Francisco. Public righteousness, or as we now call it, social justice, has never been more popular. So I would suggest to us that Jesus' words have never been more relevant than now. If you drill down into what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, what he's doing is he's offering us an overarching principle that applies to everything that he's been saying about righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. And the principle is simply this. The audience that you live for matters even more than the actions you take. The audience that you live your life for matters even more than the actions you take. Listen again to Jesus' words. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, now once he's laid out this overarching principle, Jesus goes on to illustrate it with three specific examples. He names three practices that he assumes every single one of his followers will make a regular part of their life. Here's what they are. First one is giving to the poor. He thinks that every disciple should be giving to the poor. That's verses 2 to 4. Then he talks about praying. Praying is a basic thing that every disciple will do. And then he talks about fasting. Uh, you have someone coming to teach about that in the future, so I won't take that one. But he thinks that everybody ought to be fasting. So what you should notice is in each of these sections, in those verses there, he begins by saying, whenever you give, or whenever you pray, or whenever you fast. So the question isn't if you're going to do these things. It's a matter of how you're going to do these practices. Or to be more specific, in reference to whom will you do these things? 
Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of those practices today. Instead, I want to continue to dial in on the overarching principle that Jesus lays out here about, about righteousness in, re, in regards to motivation and audience. So in order to understand Jesus' overarching principle, we need to explore his application of it. So I, w- I want to look at his first illustration uh, and kind of break it down a little bit here. And, and so I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2. Jesus says, so whenever you give alms, alms are offerings for the poor. Whenever you give alms, he says, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, they have received their reward. Now, the picture that Jesus paints is one that's almost comical. It's an image of someone making a parade for himself complete with musical instrumentation as he brings his financial gift to the poor. Now, there's no evidence that that people in the time of Jesus actually did this. But you get a vivid sense of what he's after here. We've all met people who are ostentatious with their giving, right? Now, Jesus has a label for this kind of person. He calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. This English word comes directly from a Greek word, which is hypocrites, that referred to stage actors. That's what it it was referring to. People who play a role in a theater drama. Now, we tend to attach a lot of disdain to this word hypocrite, but I want you to hear what Jesus is actually saying. This is important. A hypocrite is a person who is play-acting. Jesus uses the word to point out that it's possible to assume a false identity as a person who is doing righteousness for the glory of God when in fact his motivation is to receive the applause of people. He doesn't say these people are evil. He just says that they get the reward that they're looking for. Think about that. He doesn't say they're evil. He just says they get what they're looking for. Actors are always looking for the applause of their audience. Those who do their good deeds for the purpose of being seen get the reward that they're looking for. But according to Jesus what they miss out on is actual righteousness. Jesus is exposing the fact that there's a kind of righteousness that isn't actually righteousness. It just looks like it. Jesus has a definition of righteousness which is dependent not merely on the action or the deed being done, but on the audience that it assumes. And this has huge implications. If Jesus really means what he's saying, and if I'm being honest with myself and with you, then a large percentage of the righteous things that I have done in my life are not actually righteous. If I sort out the things in my life that I've done, like the good deeds uh, that, that have been done, and I separate the ones that have not been done out of a concern for how I appear before others and not for any benefit to my reputation or to my self-image, then what's left, I'll be honest, is an embarrassingly small amount. Not too long ago, a married couple in our church was preparing to move from one house to another. And we all know the righteous thing to do when someone is getting ready to move, right? Right? you offer to help. But here's the devious thing. I heard through the grapevine that this couple was going to hire professional movers to take care of their move. 
and I immediately breathed a prayer of thanksgiving, right? <laughs> but what happened next was a shameless act of self-righteous, of false righteousness. I saw them at church, and we have a small church, and so I couldn't help but seeing them, right? And when I saw them, I made a point of going up to them, not in some private corner, but while they were with, within the earshot of others. And I offered my services for their move, acting ignorant of what I knew, right? Hey, guys, so I hear you're moving in a couple of weeks. What time should I be there to help load the truck? How can I help? This was a classic case of unrighteous righteousness. It's a stupid and small thing to admit to you all, right? I have much darker and much more sinister stories, which <laughs> I probably won't share here, right? But you get the point. My seemingly righteous offer was totally about appearing to be virtuous and an unselfish servant of my church family, while in fact I knew my services weren't going to be needed. There was no righteousness in me. I got exactly what I was looking for. Some people in my church think just a bit more highly of me than my actual character deserves. In Jesus' words, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a play actor. I'm gathering my reward from the audience that I really care about, people. But what I've actually missed, according to Jesus, is pretty substantial. What I've missed is any actual righteousness. Jesus wants to make it clear that it's possible to do many good things. Now, we shouldn't dismiss the fact, by the way, that the scribes and the Pharisees, for example, did many upright and good things. And it's certainly possible to reap all sorts of rewards for these activities in the present. But, Jesus says, if you do this, you will completely miss the reward of God. All right, so we need to talk about this idea of rewards, don't we? What is the reward of God? Well, whatever it is, we can be sure that it's very important to Jesus because he mentions it seven times in the first half of Matthew chapter 6. Repeatedly, he keeps coming back to this idea here. But it might be fair to ask, doesn't talk about a reward for doing what is right, cheapen the action, uh, or make it a little bit less virtuous? It could sound a little trite or a little childish. Maybe it's a bit like trying to get a child to do her chores by promising her an ice cream. To many of us, this doesn't sound altruistic or pure, does it? C.S. Lewis, in an essay called The Weight of Glory, which if you haven't read, you should go home and read it tonight. It's a great essay. He addresses this concern that people sometimes raise about rewards and about how they fit into the Christian life. He writes this. He says, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. And then Lewis goes on to explain, there is a kind of reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it, like the ice cream for the kid who cleaned their room, and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. For example, he says, money is not the natural reward of love. That's why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. And in our culture, if a woman marries a man who has lots of money, we call her a gold digger, right? But marriage, he says, is the proper reward for a real lover. And he is not a mercenary for desiring it. 
And then he goes on to summarize, and this is the principle. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity in its consummation. This is precisely the point that Jesus is trying to help us see. The kind of righteousness that has people's applause as its goal receives its full reward in the praise of people. But the kind of righteousness that is done in reference to God has its reward in communion with God. To love the poor and to give to the poor in reference to God is to love not only the poor, but to love God himself. Why? Because God identifies himself with the poor. The two have become joined. The reward for giving to the poor is not merely that the poor are fed, and that they are clothed, nor is it the hope that I will be given some sort of a special recognition or a large mansion in heaven or an especially bejeweled crown. The reward is the joy of partnership and intimacy with the Father who loves the poor. Again, the reward is communion with God. That is the end toward which all true righteousness is directed. An illustration of this comes uh, from Jesus' parable of the, of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, where in the parable, the master comes to collect the investments of his servants that he's left them to invest, and he says to them, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the reward. Enter into the joy of your master. So in the end, the whole activity of giving to the poor has nothing to do with our individual uprightness. It has nothing to do with what others say or what they don't say or even the warm glow effect that we feel from doing good. The whole thing, if it has been done in reference to God, is an act of identification with him and with those whom he loves. And the whole thing is ultimately about the joy of communion. That's the reward of the Father. The same thing can be said about prayer and fasting. We don't pray merely as a means to some other end. We pray in order to be bound more deeply into the life of God. And in the same way, we don't fast in order to appear religious or to squeeze something out of God. We fast in order to be bound more deeply into the very life of God. The reward that Jesus speaks about is the joy of knowing the Father's heart and participating in the redemption of the world through Christ and his body. As C.S. Lewis said, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. But let's be honest. What Jesus is describing is very difficult. We are deeply oriented toward a life motivated by being seen by others, aren't we? We get rewarded as children for being seen doing what is right. We get promoted at work by being seen by others as productive and competent. And so it's really hard to shut this off when it comes to a life of faithfulness. So what does Jesus recommend? I want you to hear his practical advice in Matthew chapter 6, verse 3. He says, But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, to follow Jesus, 
To follow Jesus is to embrace a kind of self-forgetfulness. That's what he's saying. Your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand's doing. You have a kind of self-forgetfulness. He's calling us to be unselfconscious, to be unconcerned, unpreoccupied with ourselves and with our actions. And I want you to take note of how countercultural this is. While everything in our world seems to be pushing us toward a deeper sense of self-consciousness, toward creating, expressing, and promoting our individuality, while everything about our world is pushing us toward cultivating an audience of some kind, Jesus is calling us to a life of hiddenness. A hiddenness most especially from ourselves. To use some slightly different vocabulary, Jesus is calling us to become people of virtue. Virtue is what you do unconsciously. Virtue is what you do instinctively. If you think about something, if you're struggling to make a decision, that's not virtuous in the true sense of virtue. Virtue is what you do, virtue is what has become second nature to you. Are you familiar with that language? Second nature and first nature? So stuff that's first nature to us is stuff that nobody has to teach us, right? You, you learn how to breathe. You don't, actually, you don't learn how to breathe. You just breathe, right? It's first nature to you, right? But there is all sorts of other stuff that we have to learn, and it becomes second nature to us. Think about riding a bike. When you first start out trying to ride a bike, it's, it's a very self-conscious process. You're, you're painfully aware of your body. But once you learn to ride a bike, you don't think about how to balance or how to pedal or any of these things. You just get on a bike and you ride it. It's become second nature to you. Jesus is calling us to become the kind of people who act righteously in a second nature sort of way. People who instinctively do our righteousness without self-consciousness. But how do we do that? It's pretty tricky, isn't it? Because if you try really hard not to pay attention to your own actions, or try really hard to make sure that no one is watching you when you're doing something good, in a strange sort of way, you actually find yourself becoming more self-conscious and more preoccupied with yourself, don't you? It's like when I was a kid and someone told me, they, they try to dare me. They're like, I want you to try really hard to think, to not think of the color purple for the next 60 seconds, right? Did you ever do this as a kid? Don't think about it. And of course, when my goal is not to think about the color purple, all I can think about is the color purple. Okay, so how do we actually become self-forgetful? Is there some sort of a Zen trick to this thing here? I, I have to wonder if we, we actually might be asking the wrong question. One of the most striking things about Jesus, something that you can't help but notice when you read through the Gospels, is that Jesus is almost totally unconcerned with his image. He doesn't appear to pay attention to, to, any, to anybody, to the pundits of the day especially. He's not concerned about how he's being perceived by various segments of society or the diverse interest groups that are around him. He has no publicist. He takes no opinion polls. He hangs out with the wrong people and he has no qualms about offending the right people. He's completely uninterested in brand management and in building a platform of influence for himself. In fact, if anything, he repeatedly subverts his own platform. When he heals people, for example, he often tells them not to tell anybody about it and then to go home and give credit to God. Whenever he gets too popular at one location, he packs up shop and he moves on to another place. He makes a regular habit out of offending the crowds who have come to hear him. At one point, there's a large crowd that has gathered, and 
he tells these people that they have to eat his body and drink his blood in order to truly live. And as you might guess, the crowds are like, they're kind of grossed out by this, right? They're pretty confused about what he's talking about. And they start leaving in droves. They're like, just by the hundreds going. Meanwhile, the disciples are watching and they're like, what are you doing, Jesus? And then when everybody's left except for the 12 that are left there, Jesus turns to them and he asks them, like, so, so do you guys want to leave too? Jesus is a PR disaster. Another example of this. At one point, there's an international delegation in Jerusalem visiting from Greece. This is found in John chapter 12. And these folks put the word out on the street that they want to meet with Jesus. But instead of meeting with them, Jesus brushes them off. He's not impressed by power. He's not impressed by position or by exotic delegations from foreign places. He's uninterested in opportunities for networking with powerful people. He doesn't care what people think about all this. He's unconcerned with his audience and with his image. Jesus is remarkably unselfconscious. And this also means that he's, that he's not anxious. Instead of always rushing to be on time in, in order to try to please people, Jesus makes a habit of stopping, and he talks about the lilies of the field. And then he goes over here and he blesses some babies. He's just not, a, he's just not interested in pleasing, right? He's not afraid of death threats from those in power. He storms them to the temple, the very beating heart of Israel. And he makes a giant mess, turning over tables and spilling money all over the place and driving out animals his concern is not for himself. His concern is for his father's house. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and verse 19, Jesus explains himself to some people who are questioning his whole way of operating. And he says this, Very truly I tell you, he says, the son, that's, that is him, can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. This is Jesus' secret. This is his whole secret here. Jesus lived his life completely in reference to the Father. He spent his days and his nights dialed in on the Father. His whole attention was devoted to being completely attuned to his Father's voice and to his every movement. His Father was his audience. But how was it, you might ask, that Jesus could be so dialed in on the Father? How did that work? How is it that he could be so unconcerned with his own image, with what others thought about him? And what we have to realize, what we have to realize is that Jesus had spent his life in disciplined training for this. He engaged in what you might call the discipline of hiddenness. The discipline of hiddenness. We often forget that Jesus spent somewhere around 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. We forget about this part of Jesus' life, don't we? Nobody knew who he was. The Son of God was here on this planet, and nobody knew who he was for 30 years. He was hidden. He wasn't trying to build a platform or gather a movement. He was hidden in a wood shop, practicing a life of virtue. According to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus learned very early on in his life who his father was. We have that story where he goes to Jerusalem when he's 12 years old, and he goes into the temple, and his parents can't find him anywhere. They're looking all over the place. They find him finally three days later, and he says to them, like, didn't you know? Didn't you know that I was going to be in my father's house? 
So from a very early age, his primary concern was attunement to the Father. And then throughout his years of hiddenness, while he was learning to be a carpenter, his focus continued to be on the Father. And then as his public ministry begins, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus would regularly disappear. Like they'd have to send out search parties looking for him. Where did he go? He'd spend whole nights in prayer. Throughout his public ministry, he made a point of cultivating, cultivating a lot of space and solitude for silence. One time after all the disciples had been out doing a ministry, he said, come, come away for a while. Let's go find a quiet place. It's not accidental that on the, the very night when he was arrested and he was taken to trial, that we see once again, he is in solitude. He's in the garden in solitude and in prayer, attuning himself to the Father and to his will. This deep and abiding orientation to the Father is what allows Jesus to remain silent while false witness after false witness steps forward to misrepresent his character and his words and his actions. I don't know about you, but I can't stand it when people misinterpret me, and especially when they misrepresent me, even in minor situations. I can hardly fathom listening on in silence while people did this while my whole life was on the line. But this ability to remain non-reactive wasn't something that Jesus concocted in the moment. He had been practicing a life of hiddenness and attunement to the Father for more than 30 years. So just think about this. If Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, had to practice a life of hiddenness and solitude in order to be attuned to the Father, what does this say about us? If you're like me, and you struggle with being attuned to God, then what you need is solitude and silence, and in large doses. I'm not talking about here and there, or on the weekend once in a while, or at church. I'm talking about every day, just like Jesus. If you look at the history of the church, you'll see that its life is structured around times, multiple times of prayer and solitude each day. I love that your church is doing this. I love that you're structuring your life around morning, noon, and evening prayer. Our church does that as well. It's really important. It's really powerful. If you look at all the mature Christians that have ever like, graced the planet, all of them have matured by taking time for solitude and silence. Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard is a fantastic writer about the, about the spiritual life. He, he writes in this book called The Spirit of, of the Disciplines. He says, Solitude is the most radical of the, of the disciplines for life in the Spirit. It's the most radical. It's solitude and solitude alone that opens the possibility of a radical relationship to God that can withstand all external events up to and beyond death. And then, and I love this right here, all great works, he says, are prepared in the desert, including the redemption of the world. Think of Moses for 40 years in the wilderness. Think of John the Baptist in the wilderness. Think of Jesus 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. All great works are prepared in the desert. 
The only way, the only way to, to withstand the seductive power of our culture's obsession with cultivating an image and an audience is to enter into a disciplined pattern of hiddenness and solitude. That's the only way. The only way that we can turn down the volume of the voices that we're tempted to perform for is to enter into a kind of solitude and hiddenness that Jesus himself practiced. But as I close, I want to be really clear with you. Solitude and silence are not the thing that transform us. This is not merely about getting out into nature or about looking within yourself or doing yoga what transforms you is the love of the Father. That's what transforms you. That's what Jesus sought, and that's what Jesus encountered in his solitude. This is what Jesus says himself in John chapter 5, verse 20. He says, the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son, and he shows him all that he himself is doing. This was the central conviction of Jesus' life. The Father loves the Son. For him, everything hung on the Father's love. Everything. This love is what takes him through the seasons of popularity, and it's what takes him through the times of utter social rejection. It's what guides him from place to place and from person to person, and it's what leads him from the manger all the way to the cross. Jesus wasn't anxious about what others thought about him, and he didn't worry about image management. Why? Because he had an audience, because, he, because his audience was the Father, because what really mattered was what the Father thought of him. And what the Father thought of him had been publicly announced for all to hear at his baptism. As John the Baptist dipped him down into the water, the voice of the Father was heard speaking over him these precious words, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is my son. He's mine. I love him. And I'm pleased with him. This was the only audience that Jesus really needed. It was the only audience that he sought. Some of us today really need to hear this voice. Actually, all of us. But some of us particularly are in a season where we really need to hear this voice. And the good news, here's the good news. The good news is that these same words that were spoken over Jesus at his baptism, they are spoken over every person who entrusts his or her life to Christ. This same voice, these same words are available to you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are are the one that I love, and with you I am well pleased, Jesus says, the Father says over Jesus. And that's what he says over you. These are the words that I desperately need to hear. I have to hear these words. I need them so badly, not just to hear them, I need to anchor my whole life in them. I need them to define me, and I need them to hold me, because I am tempted to prostitute myself to the audiences around me to take my identity and my sense of self-esteem and my measurements of success and my, my feelings about who I am and my, everything about me from the audience. I have to hear the word of the Father over me. You are my son. You're the one that I love. 
and with you I am well pleased. And I can say with confidence that you need to hear this too. Some of you are in very confusing situations in your life right now. You have way too many people that you're trying to please. Your audience is diverse and confusing. And it's telling you multiple different things about yourself and about who you are and what you should be doing. And the conflicting audiences of your life are making you feel crazy and out of control. Anybody feel like that? Like there's just too many, too many voices? You desperately need the North Star of the Father's love to guide your life right now. And as I've been suggesting to you, the way that you can hear that voice is in hiddenness and solitude. Just like Jesus. If we keep on listening to this voice, if we keep attuning our lives to the voice of the Father, then one day when Jesus returns, he will say to us what the Master says to his servants in that parable. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Let's pray. Oh God, we need so badly to hear your voice. We are so tempted to be confused by the audiences around us, by the people around us. We don't know how to love people rightly. We don't know how to live our lives apart from your voice. We forget who we are. And so we ask you again tonight, right now, to speak this word over us, even in this silence right now. Remind us again that we are your sons and your daughters, that you love us in Christ, and that you are deeply pleased with us in Christ. Remind us this. Anchor us in this truth. This is what we pray, and we pray it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.